Welcome back to this special SciDevNet podcast series on water conflicts and water cooperation. I'm Fiona Broom, the podcast and features editor at SciDevNet. This is the second episode in a three-part series on the new expert guide just released by the IHE Delft Institute for Water Education called Water Conflicts and Cooperation, a Media Handbook. The book was developed to provide a background on water diplomacy. It aims to help journalists and policymakers understand the ways that media, science and politics interact and how this nexus impacts water diplomacy. In our first episode, my guests discussed their research on the role of the media in water diplomacy. We talked about how journalists have a crucial role to play in creating inspirational and transformative narratives relating to the world's complex water conflicts. In our final episode, we will take a deeper look at how water diplomacy intersects with gender inclusiveness, and my guests will shed light on their experiences of communicating and reporting on water conflicts and cooperation around the world. This week, we're talking about training. Today I'm joined by Kerry Schneider from the Stockholm International Water Institute. Kerry is part of the Transboundary Water Cooperation Department where he manages the Shared Waters Partnership. Uh, Rehab Abdel Mossen is also with us. Rehab is a freelance science journalist and she focuses on water issues in the Middle East and North Africa region. And she's joining us from Cairo in Egypt. And Dr. Charles Wendo is our final guest. Charles is a science journalist and media trainer, and he's currently the training coordinator for SciDevNet. And Charles is joining us from Kampala in Uganda, and I'm in London. Welcome everyone, and thanks for joining me. Um, Kerry, Rehab, and Charles, Let's take a look at training and let's um, discuss why training is so important when it comes to reporting from the Nile region um, and also why training is critical when it comes to reporting on some of these really big and complex issues. Rehab, you're a water reporter in the Nile Basin um, and you open your chapter in the handbook with a really wonderful quote, which is, whiskey is for drinking, water is for fighting. Um, Tell me about that conversation. Who said that to you and how has it influenced the way that you work as a journalist? Oh, thank you. Um, Well, I I, uh, used this quote as a very catchy metaphor that once a lady told me in, in a context that was quite funny. I was attending uh, World Water Week in uh, Stockholm and there was a, a big lecture on water and part of this lecture they were talking about water pricing and how religions sometimes stand against pricing water, which is from their point of view something that would make the, the, the water usage more efficient. So um, she said that for example in Middle East people are standing against putting prices on uh, on water. Almost, I think, five or four people among the audience approached the lady. I was one of them after the uh, the lecture, and they were discussing the idea of, no, we, we are paying prices for water, but the prices of, uh, of the service, not the water itself. And she suddenly said, okay, guys, water is always a conflict thing. It's, it's uh, a, an issue of conflict, not a peace-building uh, uh, topic. And she gave example of this quote. She used, uh, okay, so whiskey is for drink and water is for conflict. 
And I find it like really interesting if I suggest such a quote or start with, with this quote uh, in any of my stories, this would be like really catchy. But does it reflect the truth? Is water always a must be a topic of conflict? Or would it be a way uh, for countries to come together and exchange resources and, and knowledge and, and try to build cooperation? And this is how the story began. <laughs> So has that carried over into the way that you report on water from the region? Yes, exactly. I, I, I always remember in my mind that it is d deep inside everyone at the moment that water is a source of conflict. So I'm trying not to follow the mainstream and not to, uh, to focus on the, 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 this part, the conflict part. Because even researchers, when, when you talk to them, unfortunately they are not totally balanced. Sometimes they have their own bias. Uh, I mean, the mainstream media is affecting them too. So sometimes I take even research with some critical look. I don't take them for granted. So I, I try to kind of bring all the voices to make this kind of balance and to show this cooperation in my, in my piece. Like I, I believe that bringing all the voices is one of the, 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 the main steps to show cooperation and how water can be a topic of cooperation. Thanks, Rehab. Um, Kerry, you begin your chapter of the book by saying that a Nile journalist must understand, process and communicate incredibly complex information. Um, what is some of this complex information that journalists need to come to terms with? And what has been your experience training water journalists in the Nile region? Thanks, Fiona. Uh, I think, you know, first of all, we, we start with the entry point of our support from CUE, uh, which we can generally say is, is uh, strengthening cooperation and that finding cooperative outcomes to our shared challenges or problems uh, is almost always preferred to the alternative. So our interest is in supporting journalists uh, who are working towards telling the story of cooperation. And that means a lot for a journalist uh, in the Nile Basin, of course, but really in any large transboundary basin where the water resource is crossing the political boundaries of another country. Um, so in any of these large river basins where there are so many people dependent on the resource, we see that the, the stakeholders and the different views and interests involved just expand exponentially. So it's not just a function of complex information, although I, uh, of course we can, we can point to many sort of scientific aspects of telling the story of cooperation uh, that could be challenging for a journalist. Just basically, we, we use hydrology to answer simple questions like how much water is in this river? Uh, or we use meteorology to help us perhaps predict patterns of change in the future based on uh, what we think the available rainfall will be in a, in a coming year or period. Or if we're telling the story of a, of a development project, um, you know, using an example of, you know, some, some type of infrastructure like a hydropower plant. Well, the engineering notes may say that this hydropower plant is going to generate 10 gigawatts of, of electricity in a year. But what does that mean? 
Um, the journalists, of course, in all of these situations must be able to contextualize that information for their consumers. And these are all really important pieces to the story, but we have to remember that they're, they are just pieces. And to tell the full story of cooperation, we have to understand all of the other viewpoints and interests um, that are involved. And so, as we, we said, in the, the Nile, this is a, a major river system that impacts millions of people from beginning to end, crossing the borders of numerous countries. And as soon as that happens, the water resource itself also becomes a matter for foreign policy. And as I think our colleague Charles uh, w will tell us, uh, often this, this is closely linked to national security policy. So these are, are separate lenses through which a journalist must also communicate information uh, either to or through uh, for their consumers. Uh, beyond that, again, if we're talking about development projects um, and big infrastructure projects, uh, particularly, then we're also opening the door to the financial world. Uh, we're talking about the uh, chambers of commerce, or if there is foreign investment involved. There are so many different stakeholders who all shape the narrative around cooperation. Um, this is all beyond even sort of more basic elements, the environmental issues, the fact that uh, we're also talking about the ecosystems that are surrounding us and making life possible. Uh, Charles, as, as Kerry just pointed out, um, in, in your chapter in the book, you, you talk about how media outlets have been covering water from a national security perspective for decades. Um, you say that this is something that needs to change. Why is this not the best way to report on water? And how do you go about training or, as the case may be, retraining journalists and media outlets when it comes to water? I think it's unreal and I think it's misleading. But let's look at it this way. We can look at the Nile as a source of unity. You know, we all identify with it from Rwanda to Egypt, from Ethiopia to Sudan. But we could also choose to look at it as a source of conflict. If we all think about the Nile as a shared resource from which we can all benefit without fighting. I think we all benefit. And I think the media has a big role in making citizens of the various countries begin to look at the Nile as a source of livelihoods, as a source of unity, as a source of cooperation. And there are real stories of people, for instance, who are living along the Nile and making very good use of it sustainably without depleting the water. Is there such a story in Sudan? Can such a story be told by the media so that it's shared? So I think uh, it's very important for the media to begin to shift the narrative from conflict. It's not evidence-based because like I mentioned in the chapter, the media has reported about the Nile and conflict and war and that has never taken place. I think what is more real is the story of the Nile as a source of livelihoods, as a source of experience sharing, 
as a source of unity. And then the other thing I wanted to point out is that there's a lot of research going on along the Nile Basin. A lot of these research findings have very important lessons for people in society, for policymakers. So the more we get these research findings disseminated, remember research generates evidence. And this evidence, I think, needs to be used for making decisions at personal level and at policy level. So we need to get one, we need to get the media to shift more from the, the unreal conflict narrative to the real uh, benefits uh, uh, from a scientific point of view narrative. And, and, and that needs to come from science. What is the evidence? What works and what doesn't work? In terms of the in terms of the natural resources, how much how much water is available where, and what are the best ways of using it sustainably? In terms of social sciences research, uh, what are the different ways in which people are interacting with the Nile and interacting with each other, and what works? And what so, when you're planning training for journalists, is evidence a, a central thing to your courses? Exactly. Exactly. We did one face-to-face -face course before COVID-19 came. Uh, this course was basically training journalists to be able to report the science. But in there, we had also some scientists that came along and presented their research findings. So that, And also we thought an important aspect of this training is to get the journalists to interact with the scientists because the, the two need to work together more often. Um, how to simplify the science without losing the meaning. And we need this journalist to be able to pick these, um, be able to get these research findings and report it in a language that uh, the people can understand. But also the other one is how to make research findings interesting to editors. For example, um, you know, we, we always had the narrative that science is boring and the media are not interested. Carrie, if we're talking about water diplomacy and countering some of these potentially harmful narratives, is collaboration between scientists and reporters and also between reporters and reporters the way forwards? I, I do think those are really important aspects. Um, you know, the, the trainings that we have had, the, the support that we've been able to give journalists um, it is not meant so much to to counter uh, destabilizing disinformation, but more so to simply strengthen the work of the journalists um, and and really let that sort of shine on its own. I think we can see that you know the the, the drastic changes in how media is produced, how media is consumed particularly with regards to, to social media and just simply the number of outlets that people have, that content producers have to just simply produce content and release it in real time to anybody anywhere in the world. So I think we can understand that, you know, that this means, yes, there are more opportunities for journalists, for good journalists to produce good journalism and, and get that out there. But we can also see how complicated this may be for good journalists to distinguish themselves 
in a really crowded and very difficult to filter landscape of media providers. So I think for, for Siwi, the focus has simply been to help journalists establish credibility through improving their writing on topics related to cooperation by, by bringing in experts of, of different backgrounds uh, and sciences. We're, we're able to put new information in the hands of the journalists. Uh, we're able to to help them make acquaintance with experts who may be references or, or somehow provide input or, or clarity on their stories. And I think this is, where, this is where we have to sort of hang our hopes in a lot of ways. The sheer volume of disinformation floating around the internet now suggests that responding individually to, to disinformation campaigns is a waste of time, um, it's a waste of effort. It's a waste of energy. So by journalists uh, consistently producing good quality, balanced journalism, they are establishing a, a reputation. And, and people notice these types of things. So whether it's uh, a journalist at an individual level or if it's because you know, journalists are attracted or align themselves with with media agencies or companies that that have a reputation for producing good quality journalism. You you can see these patterns, and I think you know there's a lot that we're learning sort of on a daily basis about about disinformation and and the ways that it affects and shapes our our view of the world in lots of different ways, not just related to to water, of course by creating a community of really dedicated journalists uh, and providing them the resources that can really sort of help them distinguish themselves against people or news outlets who are only interested in attracting clicks, we're contributing to a, a, a general public good. And at some point, we also have to understand that, that media consumers have some responsibility as well to, to seek this out, sort of in, in, in the sense that uh, of, of the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. In this sense, with journalists, we can provide them with access to, to resources, experts, information that will improve their journalism. And we have to hope that they use it. And we have to hope that that resonates with their, their, uh, their media consumers. You know, another really important aspect of our support has been to facilitate a closed group uh, of dedicated journalists from across borders. You know, there, there's nobody who can identify uh, the nonsense in a story faster than another journalist. And uh, from my view, and particularly amongst the journalists that we've had the pleasure of working with, there's a really collegial nature um, amongst the group as professionals, regardless of where they come from. And so uh, even when um, the, there, there may be instances where people are sharing news examples, whether it's from the group or from outside of the group, um, where there is disinformation or where the, the story is not being told with as, as balanced as it could be, the journalists let each other know that. Um, and, and they're able to sort of be resources for each other to improve that. And I think 
sort of within that um, within that network that that they've established amongst each other, having this is uh, is an incredible benefit uh, to them and and all of us who are uh, who are eagerly consuming uh, the fantastic reporting that that comes out of this group. Yeah, so it's journalists speaking truth to other journalists as well as speaking truth to power. Charles, what would be your top tips to reporters who want to stand out amongst this cacophony of news and to um, make sure that their accurate and balanced reporting is is standing above the rest? I think there are two things or three things that matter a lot. One is uh, the ability to present the science, so being able to communicate a story that is uh, of technical jargon, or if the jargon is used, it's explained, and being able to present information in such a way that clear, easily understand what you're saying uh, when we use numbers and statistics, and we use them uh, sparingly. Uh, can we use also real-life examples and so on and so on? So those are things that make the information easy to understand for our audiences, because people have choices. Again, it's important to make the story interesting to the editor and also to the audiences. People read things that they connect with, things that they relate with. And it's very important to present these research findings in a way that you know, people find it interesting. And um, uh, uh, one of the most important ways is to humanize the science. Can we tell real story of human beings? in relation to these uh, research findings. You know, real life stories are very important. If we are just talking about a rise in water level, it is not the same as telling the story of a family that has been displaced by a flood. Then um, the other thing is that to uh, relate it to something that is trending, one of the very first, I know an, an issue that most people are talking about at the time. One of the very first stories that I wrote was about uh, Lake Victoria. It was actually my first media story. It was uh, Lake Victoria uh, was invaded by a, a water weed, uh, the water hyacinth. And I decided to look at the water hyacinth as a potential feed for livestock. And I did a story around research done in various countries on the potential feeding value of water hyacinth. Now, if I did that story at any other time, uh, the editor would not have taken the story. But I did the story at a time when Lake Victoria had invaded, had been invaded by this water weed, and it was a problem that everyone was talking about. And the other thing is to relate the, the story to the things that people care about. People care about food, people care about uh, income, people care about family, people care about success, and so on and so on. So can we know the things that people care about and then we relate? And that's our program for today. Thanks for listening. My guests were Kerry Schneider from the Stockholm International Water Institute, freelance science journalist Rehab Abdel Mohsen, and Dr. Charles Wendo, the training coordinator for SciDevNet. Make sure to join us again in two weeks for our final episode in the series, when we'll be talking about communication for scientists and journalists. 
We'll also be holding a live online debate on the 1st of March, where we'll bring together the water diplomacy community, including journalists, researchers, peace and security specialists, and diplomacy experts. We'd love to know what you would like discussed during the debate. If you have a question about water diplomacy or science journalism, send us an email at news at scidev.net. That's news at scidev.net. I'm Fiona Broom. See you again for our next episode on the 22nd of February. This podcast was produced by SciDevNet with support from the IHE Delft Institute for Water Education and the DUPC2 Project.